So it's been a pretty crazy last 36 hours. Um, Brenna and I, being the wild, crazy, only been married two years couple, were being wild and crazy on Friday night walking around the Johnson City Mall. Um, super exciting. Um, but as we were walking around, uh, we hadn't even been around one time yet, and they got a call from DCS that but about a two-year-old little girl. And uh, needless to say, the next couple hours were a little crazy. Um, I'm echoing really bad. Is that just me? Or is that? Maybe it's because you moved my microphone. <laughs> All right. Anyway, so I thought, yeah, it sounds a lot better now. Um, so I, thought, I fully expected, like Brent and I talked all week, that just knowing where I was going this morning in the sermon, as I was preparing, as I was looking at all this, I just, there was really no doubt in my mind that we were going to get a call this week uh, for foster care. And it's really just caused me just to, like wide-eyed even more at um, just this, this truth of the doctrine of adoption. And last week we talked about a lot of different things, and we spent the first week looking at what is called the doctrine of adoption, God adopting us into his family. And I just want to recap very briefly um, last week because there was a lot jammed into what we talked about. Um, I really, the sermon ended up being about 15 minutes at least shorter than I thought it was going to be, so um, consider yourselves fortunate. But what we looked at is Ephesians 1, that the God, before the foundation of the world, chose to adopt his children that through Christ we can be added to the family of God. And like it, it was not just some happy accident. This isn't just something that, that God chose to do after, after we made bad choices. But like before the foundation of the world, God chose to reveal his glory to the world through the adoption of his children. And it, for, for those of you that are saved, for Christians, this is the most beautiful news in the world because he chose to save you. Like, before the foundation of the world... And that now that we relate to God, not as just a judge, but as a perfect heavenly father. That kind of semi-quote that I gave last week, kind of a combination of a lot of different quotes, but that God is not just a judge who judges sin, but he is a perfect judge who then steps down and says, now come home with me, son. Come home with me, daughter. You are a part of my family. But this changes how we can now relate to God. Not just as a judge that we are trying to appease, but as a father who welcomes us into his arms, who there, there's rest there. And I said this last week, but if we don't fully understand what it means to be a child of God, if we don't fully grasp that, then we're never going to be able to live our lives as if that is true. And that's, that's what I've just prayed over and over and over again. Um, throughout last week, throughout the week before, just that we would all, as a church, so deeply understand and so deeply love this idea of God's love for us as children, God's adoption of us as children. All that we are, all that we do, as the life that we live as followers of Christ flow from this identity as a child of God. So last week was really kind of just an overview, kind of a, a sky view of 
the doctrine of adoption, of God's love for us. And I, I mentioned a couple different things almost in passing. Like, that man, in our adoption, like all three members of the Trinity are so very intimately involved. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And this week I want to look specifically at the work of Christ in our adoption. That the work of Christ in our adoption, His incarnation, how this so deeply affects the way that we then live out the gospel, the way that we love the orphan, the way that we love others in this world. So back a couple, that's probably been a month or so ago now, we talked about the, um, caring for widows. We, I read through a bunch of verses in the Old Testament that show God's love for the widow, his provision for the widow. Over and over it says, don't forget the widow, the orphan, the sojourner. Make sure you're caring for the orphan, the widow, the sojourner, over and over again. Psalm 68.5. Psalm 68.5 says, Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. Remember, it's not just saying this is something that God does. It's saying this is who God is. He is father of the fatherless, protector of widows. Like, I'm not going to go through and read every single verse again that we went through last time about God's love and provision for these special groups of people. We see it all through there, from the Genesis through the end of the Bible, we see his love and provision for these groups. We see in Deuteronomy 24, he makes a law that says, man, when you go to harvest your fields... Harvest at once. Don't go back and pick up what you dropped. Leave that there. That is going to be my provision for the orphan, for the fatherless, for the widow, for the sojourner. He, he talks to his people in the Old Testament and says, when you have feasts, when you have celebrations, when you have sacrifices, when you have all these things that you're doing together as my people, don't neglect the orphan. Don't neglect the widow. Bring them in to you. Bring them into the congregation over and over and over again, we see God's commands for this. But then we see, I, I talked about it a little bit back last time, we said there's a lot of warnings too for the church, for the people of Israel, for God's people, of warnings against not neglecting them. And so there's some pretty strong words. Deuteronomy 27, 19 says, Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. Pretty scary news. Isaiah 10. If you want to go ahead and start turning to Isaiah, we're going to read a couple of things in Isaiah. If you want to flip to Isaiah chapter 1, I'm going to read from Isaiah 10 first, though. Not confusing at all. Isaiah 10. I'm going to read the first three verses. He writes, Woe to you, well, woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees, and the writers who keep writing oppression. To turn aside the needy from the just to turn aside the needy from justice, and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil, and that they make, may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment? To ruin that will come from afar, in the ruin that will come from afar. To those to whom will you flee from help, and where will you leave your wealth? Warning, that don't be like these people. Don't, don't neglect the fatherless. Don't neglect the widow. Don't neglect the sojourner. 
But again, whether it's in commands or whether it's in warning, we see God's love and care and provision for these groups. Over and over and over again, we see his heart. I think, like, that's something I think that is really cool about the Bible is we get a glimpse into the heart of God, what he loves, how he loves, what his love is like. I hope you're in Isaiah 1. Because in Isaiah 1, we see God's words to the people of Israel here. He's giving them this warning. So I want to pick up in verse 12 of Isaiah chapter 1. Listen to what God is saying to his people. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feast my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Did you hear what's all going on right there? Like, these people are being externally obedient to the things that God has commanded. They're giving offerings. They're keeping the feasts that have been, been commanded. It says they're, they're, they're praying. But verse 12 says, bring no more vain offerings. He's like, I'm not even listening to you. Because they're caught up in the external actions. They're caught up in just doing the external. But it's pr- the wrong motivation. Look at verse 16. Just keep reading. He says, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. He's not after the, this, the ritualistic external obedience that we are so prone to give him. He's not just after us to saying the right words or, or merely just doing the right things. He says, he's telling his people, I've had enough of this. This is not what I'm after. Cease to do evil. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. It's almost as if God is saying, I want you to love what I love. I want you to love what I love. The orphan, the widow, the weak, the vulnerable. All these groups of people that his laws protect. Like that's what he's looking for. He's looking for our loving what he loves, serving how he served, pursuing where he pursued. And I think this is where you see in James 1.27, it's kind of the heart of that verse where James says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let me read that again. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and keep oneself unstained from the world. He's saying pure religion, real religion, like what I'm looking for, 
Here's what it looks like. And he says, visiting the orphan, visiting the widow, in their affliction. Like, he said, that's what I'm looking for. It's that true religion. But it's, it's my fear that many very well-intentioned believers across the world have lost sight of what God cares about most. Across the city, across the state, across the world. Like, God's not looking for us to go to church the most times. He's not looking for us to give the biggest offerings. He's not looking for us to pray with the biggest words. He's not looking for us just to be put together. What he's looking for are hearts to love what he loves. To care for what he cares about. Like if we are to be the people of God, that's what it means to love what he loves. To be who he has made us to be. And that's like, like obeying the Old Testament law. What we see in the Old Testament law, like it was good, it was so good. Like, it's not, I'm not trying to say that the, those laws and the feasts and the festivals and all those stuff that he put in place, no, because the whole Old Testament law was provision. Provision for the people of Israel. Like, we, we, we saw some of God's law was provision for the orphans, for the widows, for the sojourners. And if you zoom out on like a bigger picture, you see that the law was God's provision for his people. It was setting his holy standard, but it was also providing for them. And I think that as we get, can often get so caught up in Old Testament law and, and wondering, how does this law still apply? What do we do with this Old Testament law that doesn't make sense? What do we do with that? I think we get too caught up there, and we can miss the provision that was found in the Old Testament law. I'm going to be in Genesis 3 and 4 if you want to flip over there. Give you just a second because I need to find it too. In Galatians 3, Paul is talking about the law, the purpose of the law, why the law was there. Galatians 3, I'm going to read verses 23 and 24. He writes, Now before faith, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The law was not some evil thing. The law was not some thing that was bad. It was for good. It was, it was so what does it say? It said it was the guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. <laughs> Even the law itself was pointing towards Christ, was pointing towards ultimate fulfillment in Christ. It was providing for the weak, for the outcast, for the orphan, for the fatherless, for the widow, all while pointing towards Jesus as the ultimate provision. Jesus as the ultimate provision. Because that, more than anything else, more than any other physical provision that it could provide, the law was showing Christ as the ultimate provision. Look at down to verse, sorry, chapter 4, verse 1 through 7. Just a couple of verses after this. Galatians 4, 1 through 7. Paul says, I mean that, an, that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the day is set by his father. 
In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. For those under the law, like Christ became the ultimate provision, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Yes, God's ultimate provision, his ultimate provision for the orphans in the Old Testament, his, his ultimate provision for the people of Israel, his ultimate provision for spiritual orphans, you and I, was the giving of his own son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. This is what we were talking about last week with us being spiritual orphans. There's Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, right? Children of this world, we were just following along with the world, content in the sin that we were in. God's ultimate provision was giving his son to redeem us out of that. To adopt us as sons and daughters into his family. But I want to point out a couple of things about what this looks like, like what that looks like, because this was not an easy thing for Jesus. So Jesus becoming man is called the incarnation, the incarnation of Christ. Like Jesus, fully God himself, becoming man, coming to us, putting on human flesh. Matthew 1.23 says this, he says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Born of a woman, fully man, yet fully God. God with us. Jason Johnson says it this way. He says, The doctrine of Christ's incarnation speaks of God stepping into humanity, wrapping himself in flesh and living completely and fully as both God and man. Like, this is so difficult to grasp, but do you understand that Christ becoming man means that he left heaven. He left glory. He left what he was. Like, Christ has always been. Like, for all of eternity, Jesus had reigned with God. Like, Colossians 1 says, like, everything that was made was made for him and through him. John 1 says that in the beginning was Jesus. Jesus has always been reigning with his Father, glorifying God, being praised, the angels praising him. Like, he left that, left perfection, left a place that was not broken, left a place that there was no sin, there was no hurt, there was no pain, only perfection, only glory. Only perfect communion with his Father. 
in becoming man, Jesus left this. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is what Jesus did. Like, though he was God, humbled himself, became like us, became a servant. Think, think about what Christ subjected himself to in becoming man. New hunger for the first time. Would have known pain. Would have known temptation by Satan in the desert. He would see firsthand the pain and sufferings of this world. Jesus left a throne for a manger. He left a throne for what he described in the Bible to have nowhere to lay his head. He left heaven and one of his followers would betray him. He left heaven, one of his closest friends would deny him. Like, he was perfect, perfect relationship with his father, yet stepped into our brokenness, yet stepped into our space, yet came to us, God with us. Like our salvation came through God stepping into our space, becoming like us, to redeem us. It says at the perfect time, he did this. Like the ultimate provision of God was sending his son into our space, into our world, to redeem us. Emmanuel, God with us. So I say all of that. Like, I was probably like, wait, what does this have to do with the doctrine of adoption? What does this have to do with God adopting us into his family? What does this have to do with this? The work of Christ becoming man, dying for the sins of man, taking our brokenness on himself, that has everything to do with this. Redeemed those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. <laughs> we talked about last week God's plan before the foundation of the world to adopt us as sons and daughters. Like this was his plan A. This was accomplished in Christ. Christ accomplished this. Accomplished our adoption. Like, we've been redeemed. We can now know that love of the Father because of Christ. But understanding our adoption, it, understanding that through Christ we've been redeemed, we've been adopted into His family, it changes everything. It changes our relationship with God. It changes the way that we relate to him because we don't relate to him as judge. We relate to him as father. As a perfect judge, but a perfect father who's welcomed us into his family. The rest that is there. The love that is there. The trust that can be there because God chose to save you. 
Like, we don't have to continue to prove our worth. We don't have to continue to prove how good we are to Him. But it also impacts the way that we love those around us. It impacts the way that we love one another. It impacts the way that we love those outside the church. Understanding our adoption impacts the way that we love that which God loves. And just to be clear, like understanding the doctrine of adoption should also drastically impact the way that we care for the physical orphans in this world. Understanding the way that we were orphans, adopted into the family of God, that we had no hope, but yet were added to his family. This leads, like, this should lead to us reflecting that same, of, that same type of love to the orphan, to the fatherless. And I, I said this earlier, but I, I'm afraid that like way too many people have, have lost sight of this. Like, that instead of loving what God loves, we've given our lives to the pursuit of riches. We've given our lives to the pursuit of comfort. We've given our lives to the pursuits of the world. We've given our lives towards that that will not last. So what, what does this mean for the physical care of the orphan? What does this mean for that? Like, I think, I don't, I'm not going to give a glamorized view of what caring for the orphan looks like. Because I think all too often, care for the physical orphans in this world is is glamorized in a way that, that gives people cute Christmas cards. That gives people a, a, a pretty little picture that they've added someone to their family. Oh, good for you. And I've seen this, like even on websites, foster and adoption websites, there's lots of pictures of all these happy families that, that just are, are perfect in the, the, the way that they've adopted. And I... I'm not saying that doesn't happen. Kids, it can be added to families, and there can be happy families, absolutely. But I think if we over-glamorize this, we miss it. Because caring for the orphan is stepping into the brokenness of other people's lives. It's stepping into mess, whether it's foster or adoption or whatever other method we're, we're doing in caring for the orphan. It is stepping into the mess of someone else's life. It's jumping headfirst in. I mean, I was really getting a picture of this last night as I was laying in bed way past my bedtime. And this little girl was crying two hours, just crying. Mommy, Daddy, Mommy, Daddy. I don't think she has any clue. And it was just this this weight of this sense of like, a two-year-old should not wonder that. Who? Where? Why? That's not something a two-year-old should be concerned with. Brokenness, messiness. But then you look at the incarnation of Christ, what he stepped into, becoming man, taking our brokenness. Listen to this quote. This is from Jason Johnson again. He says, The incarnation reveals much of who God is and what God does. 
It tells us that he is the kind of God who sees broken and hard things and doesn't step away from them, but steps into them. He wraps himself up in our brokenness, carried our brokenness to the cross, and was broken by our brokenness so that we don't have to remain in that sorry state. God saw us in our plight and moved towards us, not away from us. That is the gospel. God taking our brokenness on himself, becoming broken for us, taking it to the cross so that we might be adopted as sons and daughters. Like if we are going to show the world who Jesus is, if we're going to show the world Christ, who stepped into our brokenness and stepped into our messiness, stepped into our sin, I don't think we should expect our lives to look any different stepping into the mess of others. I debated whether or not to do this, but I do want to show you a couple graphics. Is the computer working? Good. So the first one. Hope you have great eyes and can see this. So if not, I'm going to describe it, so in case someone's listening in the future. So what you have here is a picture of the United States with two numbers on them. The top number is the amount of orphans that are immediately adoptable in that state. I'm sure you probably can't see it, but Tennessee, 2,500. 2,500 orphans in the state of Tennessee, immediately adoptable. The number on the bottom is the number of evangelical churches in the state. It's over 11,000. One family in every four churches was to pursue the adoption of an orphan, there would be no children waiting to be adopted into the state of Tennessee. Zero. How about, there's another one. Another graphic. This one will be a little bit easier. Hey. So, there's 430,000 orphans in foster care. Temporary, long-term, across the board. There's almost 350,000 evangelical churches in the United States. I'm not going to do the exact math, but that's less than two kids per church that could step in and immediately there would be no children waiting to have a foster family. I don't want to show these here just to say, oh, wow, or oh, to add, in, to add guilt or try to, to guilt in any way. But as I continue to see God's love and care for the orphan, I see that it should be the, the duty of the church to step in to meet these types of needs. Like if you look through church history, it has always been the church leading the way in orphan care, in widow care, in all these different things. It's been the responsibility of the church. Even here in the U.S., it used to be the sole responsibility of the church to care for the orphan. But over time, what you've seen is the state step in and the church step back. Like the Department of Children's Services has stepped in and the church has stepped back. I think it's the, the role of the church to care for the orphan. And I'm not saying that, oh, DCS is this awful thing that we should try to get rid of or abolish. No, no, no. 
like just as I said with talking about widows, there's lots of government programs that are great and are huge helps to both the orphan and the widow. But just imagine a, a world where DCS automatically calls the church because they know the church is going to step in and help. That as soon, imagine a, a mobilized church even. Big C church, little C church. Imagine DCS, as soon as they get a call, they call the church and say, I know the church is going to step up and meet this need. I think the church is very uniquely structured to care for the orphan. A covenant community characterized by our love for one another, our love for Jesus, Galatians, like bearing one another's burdens. I think we're uniquely equipped to care for the orphan. And as the church cares for the orphan, like the gospel is put on display for the world to see. It's put on display. Tony Marita says this. He says, When the church carries the heart and mission of Christ into the community and lives them out by caring for the defenseless and the least of these, the gospel is made more attractive. It's not that we enhance the gospel in any way. The gospel is perfect in itself. But how often have you heard, oh, the church is just full of hypocrites that say things that don't actually do them. Living out the gospel as on display for the world to see and the care for the orphan. The gospel's clear. I want to show you a really quick video. Um, it's very similar to the one I showed last week. Same organization, but this one is by Francis Chan. So watch this just for a second. That's always the motivation. It's always Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. So it's not about us rescuing these orphans, but it's about Jesus rescued me. Don't you understand? You and I, were children of God and celebrate that we are no longer orphans. We're loved by this Father. We're Don't in this watch. eternal Listen. family. And it's just, it's just this overflow of all this joy makes us want, you know, out of a desire. Man, I want to rescue these other kids. I want to be able to do a little bit of what God did for me. Look, it's one thing to preach the gospel, but here's an opportunity we have to actually live it out, give them a picture of it. You know, we, we talk about how, you know, we've been adopted by God. He takes us on as his children. Um, but now we have an opportunity to give the world a picture of that. See, just like, see, now I'm showing Christ. I'm showing God the Father to other people. So it's all gospel-centered. It, it's, it's now that I've been telling you about God the Father. Let me represent him by what I actually do by taking these kids into my own home, by loving these children and encouraging other people to do it. Now they see the gospel in action. They've heard and we've taught them, look, God rescued us. And now we're giving them a picture of it. Here's a picture of rescue. I'm doing the same thing God did for me. As the church cares for the orphan, 
for the widow, for those that cannot provide for themselves. The gospel is put on display for the world to see. <laughs> this all goes back to understanding who we are in Christ. Understanding that we've been adopted into the family of God. Like, without understanding that, we're never going to be able to live this out. Before the foundation of the world, God chose to adopt us into his family. Not plan B, not plan C, but plan A. What would it look like for caring for the orphan to be plan A? Whatever that looks like in, in our lives. I've heard a lot of people ask the question or wonder, man, am I called to adopt? Am I called to foster care? Am I called to care for the orphan in this way or that way? What would it look like if the question was different? If it was, why am I not? Why am I not? Like the God's love and care and provision for the orphan is very, very clear. We see God's heart. What if we assume we were called to it and looked and asked God to show us what are reasons right now that maybe I'm not? Listen, I'm not trying to say that every single individual, every single married couple, every single family is called to adopt right now. I'm not at all saying that every single family, individual, married couple is called to foster right now. Like I will affirm that that is not for everyone in every single moment of their life. But what if, we, what if we're asking the wrong questions as to if we should step in? We've already seen the heart of God. He's shown us that we've been adopted as sons and daughters. Like, the way this plays out in the church, the way this plays out <laughs> is really far-reaching. I mean, as you think of this playing out, the love and care for the orphan, some will foster, some might adopt. Some might give generously so someone for another family can adopt. Some might actively support and be on their knees in prayer, actively praying and supporting families that are doing those things. Some might go overseas, spend the rest of their lives working with orphans across this world. And I would just ask, what is our role? What is your role? As followers of Jesus, as Christians, our pursuit is to become more like Christ every day. To talk as he talked, to love as he loved, to walk as he walked. We've talked about being ambassadors for Christ. What is our role in being an ambassador for Christ to the orphan? And as we seek to become more like Christ, as we see that he didn't step back in seeing our sin, seeing our mess, seeing our brokenness, but he stepped in. He stepped in. Like, caring for the orphan in whatever avenue that looks like is hard. It is messy. It is difficult. Like, I really can't even count the number of times. I mean, Brent and I both have heard, wow, I could never do what you're doing. 
I could never do that. I would, be, I would get so attached to the kids, I'd, I'd never want to let them go. I just can't do that. But good for you. Brenna and I don't foster because we're some superheroes that don't get attached to kids. <laughs> like, in stepping in, our plan is to get too attached. To step into brokenness. To step into mess. To try to be like Jesus. And I think that as a church, as we care for the orphan, as we care for the widow, it's not supposed to be easy. Like, the hurt, it should be expected. But when this was our situation, Jesus stepped in, took our brokenness, and he went to the cross. But listen, like, we don't step in to somehow be a savior. We don't step into hard places, to difficult places, to be Savior. Caring for the orphan, caring for the widow, caring for anyone in need, it's not being Savior, but it's stepping in with the hope of the gospel and pointing to the Savior. We step into the mess with a hope of a Savior who stepped into our mess who stepped into our sin when we were dead in our trespasses. We don't step into saviors. We step in pointing to the Savior with a hope that goes beyond this world, with a hope that goes beyond the temporary, with a hope that is based on Christ. This, this goes way beyond foster care. This goes way beyond adoption. This goes way beyond... This is understanding this. Understanding what Christ did impacts everything. It changes our posture towards all that is broken. We step in. We step in. I want us just to look at Jesus. Look, just look, look at Jesus. Stepped out of heaven left glory to step into this world, to become fully man, to know hurt, to know pain, to know hunger, to know heartache. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He did that so that we might be children of God. Look at Jesus' words in John 14, 18. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. There's no, beautiful, no news that is more beautiful than that right there. There's no more beautiful news Let's just look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Look what he has done for us. Look at what he's done. And then let every one of our days be becoming more like him, humbling ourselves, becoming a servant, stepping into the mess of other people's lives, 
Stepping towards brokenness and not away from it. Displaying the gospel for a world to see. And stepping in and pointing towards a Savior that has the power to save. Let's pray.